Welcome to Cancer and You, with psychotherapist and writer Karen Seeger, who has also been diagnosed with breast cancer twice. The program is for everybody affected by cancer, whether you are the one with the illness, family, a friend, colleague, or healthcare professional. Karen talks about the emotional and mental impact of cancer and how to cope. She records her shows on her orange houseboat on the River Thames in the UK. Please note that Cancer and You does not provide medical advice. And now over to your show host, Karen Seeger. Hello and welcome to this edition of Cancer and You with me, Karen Seeger. If this is your first time here, then you're most welcome. If you've come back for more, then it's great to have you back. I hope you will find today's edition of Interest and Use. I'm really delighted to share with you a conversation I had with Siobhan Freeney. Siobhan is based in Ireland and she is an advocate for breast density. She also writes her blog beingdense.com and is busy on social media. Siobhan has also been treated for breast cancer in the past and in our conversation we covered what breast density is all about, why it matters to you if you're affected by breast cancer or not and we talk also about advocacy. What is involved? How can you become an advocate? Why this might not be something for everybody and why that is okay too? how you can use your own patient experience to advocate for yourself or for others. Now, not all of you might be interested in breast density and not all of you might be interested in advocacy. So this show is in two parts. The breast density topic will be covered in the first section, which will run up to sort of 18 minutes if you want to check on your counter. And if you're particularly interested in the topic of advocacy, then you are most welcome to fast forward and check out our conversation, which starts sort of 18 minutes if you want to check on your counter. But of course, we would love you to stay with us for the whole duration, because there is so much of wisdom and knowledge that Siobhan shares with us I certainly have learned quite a few things in our conversation. I would love you to benefit from it all. Here it goes. Siobhan, welcome to Cancer and You. Thank you for joining us today. It's lovely to meet you, Karen. It really is. Introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What do you do? Okay. Well, you and I have met on, on Twitter. I suppose that's the first thing I should say. Um, my name is Siobhan. Freeney. Um, I just turned 59 in August. I live in Ireland on the, uh, I suppose you'd say the southeast coast. Right. Um, quite close to Dublin, but uh-huh. in, a, in, a, in an area called Wexford. And uh, I have two sons. I'm married and I have, well, I, I got into this because I, of my breast cancer diagnosis back in 2015. I blog a bit. I call it Being Dense. It's a play on what I write about is breast density. So it's a bit of a play on that being dense. So, um, and we came up with it as, as a family. My two sons, husband, best friend, 
putting out ideas and uh, how I might maybe channel some of what I was feeling at the time. And I had read about this um, density issue and um, yeah, we came up with the name. So a personal meaning, but it also has taken on a, a bigger meaning in the breast cancer community. And yes. I, I, I said to you earlier on, I, I never heard of breast density before meeting you online and, and reading what you're doing. Tell us a bit more about it. What is it and why is it relevant? Okay, well, the first mention of it I received really in, a, in an American blog from a lady called Nancy Capello. So Nancy herself had been diagnosed with fairly advanced stage breast cancer in 2004. She subsequently was given the information that she had breast density. Her advocacy grew into, an, you know, something quite extraordinary. And so the way she went about it was she, she went for legislation. So each state in the, in, the, in the United States issued their own legislation when it comes to these things. So the first legislature um, was in Connecticut, which is where Nancy lived. That was passed in 2009. So that was when it was born. And what did so, that legislation mean? What, what needed to be done as a result of that? Nancy blog was RU Dense. She negotiated with the Connecticut legislature that all women in Connecticut would be given notification, written notification about their breast density. So when you went for a mammogram, you would be told whether or not your breasts were dense. Yes. Okay. So the importance of that is that for women, it's, it, first of all, breast density is normal. Yes. Um, younger women in particular will have dense breasts because of the biological makeup of breast tissue. Yes. And as we grow older, we become less dense generally. Uh-huh. So I think that's where they, they initially introduced the age of 50 for women to start, you know, population-based um, cancer screening on the premise that women of that age group would be less likely to have dense breasts. But we've discovered over the years with, with a lot of research into it, and in fact, not all women age 50 and over have reduced density. In fact, it's now thought that as many as 50% of women, certainly 43 to 50% of women over 50, will maintain density. And that density, when your mammogram image is, is produced, for a normal fatty breast, you would have a lot of grey, you know, light grey, black area on it. And as the density increases, so it goes from normal fatty tissue to scattered fibroglandular tissue, that's the second, then to heterogeneously dense is the third, and then extremely dense is the fourth. So for the, the two, heterogeneously dense and extremely dense, your breast imaging would look like this gray area, but with a lot of white. Right. A lot of white, yeah, you know, in it. And the denser you are, the more white it is. Uh -huh. And the, the, the problem is that mammography screening if it shows a lesion or, or the start of a, of a tumor it will also look white so then the one white cancels out or masks the other and yes. and it's masking effect that is the that's the problem right so that's the danger if you like for women and what tool is then used afterwards to distinguish or, or to really be un, be able to understand what's going on if white shows up 
Okay, well, white will always show up in dense tissue. Yeah. Um, and that's why a cancer tumor may not, may not be seen. So for women with dense breasts, it is recommended that they would be offered supplementary ultrasound screening. And in some cases, not all, obviously, you may even require um, an MRI. Yes. But um, in most cases, ultrasound screening would be recommended. However, ultrasound screening cannot determine your density. As far as I know, it's determined by mammography. So it's mammographic breast density. Yeah. Mm. So I guess somebody listening to this and it is new to them, they might ask themselves, well, does it apply to me? And if so, depending on the country where I live, we may have some legislation like this or we don't. I suspect many other countries don't. What do patients do? What, what would I need to do to be proactive? Do I need to be concerned? What, what should people do? Well, the first thing I suppose I should say is um, being dense and, and I, we, we're not medical yes. people. Um, I'm, I have no science background. I'm involved in this as a patient advocate. And but we, I do have just recently been very lucky to have Julie Gershon from the United States and she has come on board as medical advisors. She's a, she's a board certified radiologist. And there are also other people. I mean, I've liaised with Wendy Ingham in, in Australia and in, in, in putting together um, you know, a leaflet, which I distribute at events. Do we need to be concerned? I think, I think women should be proactive and involved yes. more than concerned. So, you know, I would advocate breast checking, you know, oneself. I think that's very important. Yeah. I've always done it and I've always been happy or, or had been up until my diagnosis that, you know, my ma mammogram came through and everything was fine. And I felt very reassured by that. However, you know, my diagnosis came within months of a clear mammogram. That would be a concerning factor. And I suppose following that, I became more interested, my interest in, in this whole area. D density isn't palpable. So when I say women to check themselves regularly, I think that's just for all women to become aware of what's normal for them. That's, that's Absolutely. Yes, it's so important. And I must say, I put my hand up. I wish I had done it more often. And I think it's also important to do that post-diagnosis because we might perhaps still have a tumor and are waiting for things to happen. It's important to familiarize ourselves with how that feels because it might change. Yeah, no, I'd agree totally with you, Karen, because I had a mastectomy. Um, on my right side and for, for quite some time it, it did upset me too much to yes. to check my left breast it really did and I yes. totally get that so following particularly following a diagnosis it can be very very hard to to go back to it however I think we get beyond that and you you certainly are and I, and I am so I would advise all women so the, the two things I would say is you know breast density is normal so so we shouldn't panic about it Yes. However, it is only determined by having a mammogram. Yep. And you cannot feel it. It's not palpable. And it has nothing to do with whether or not you have large breasts, small breasts, heavy breasts. It, it's, it's absolutely nothing to do with that. And Siobhan, we're talking about women. Does the same apply to men? Men can get breast cancer. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the issue of dense breasts, I guess, that, that does that apply as well? I don't have any statistics or percentages or any facts to hand in terms of breast density for men. But I do 
believe that, you know, because men develop breast cancer, again, to become aware of what's normal for them. But in terms of, um, in terms of breast density, I don't know. I just know that in spite of attending for regular mammograms prior to the age of 50 and, and beyond into my 50s with the breast screening program, I was never made aware of or I had never heard the term. And for something that can be so important to us for women's health and breast health, I was staggered by the enormity of what was happening in the States. You know, legislation was yes. passed and we're still not hearing about it or no. we're hearing about it, but we're advocating in order to hear about it. It's and not what cool. about Ireland and breast density? Is that recognised as a potential issue that needs to be looked out for in Ireland? We, we just recently held, in. Um, I, I was very, very lucky to be involved with um, Breast Predict. They're the breast cancer research wing of the Irish Cancer Society, and they've had a fantastic six-year program. I was very lucky to, to attend a number of events with them over the last couple of years, and we collaborated and co-hosted the first public breast density seminar in the Royal College of Surgeons in, in Dublin. And at that, we had a representative, a radiologist from BreastCheck. So, and, and I would also say we had a, an epidemiologist who spoke about the biology of it. And then we were very lucky to have a visiting keynote speaker who came to us from Canada, Dr. Paula Gordon. We had a, a great turnout. So yes, I would say that there is an awareness there in the screening sector and in, within the screening program. There certainly was an acknowledgement on the night and on the evening that, you know, we need to perhaps be doing more about this. However, there is a reluctance to go beyond that. I'll continue to pursue what I believe is a requirement for a change in our protocol. So really all we're asking is for women attends for um, a mammogram that she is given the information uh, about her breast density because we believe that when the radiologist looks at the image it doesn't take a long time to assess whether or not uh, a woman has dense breasts it's it's a mammographic finding the information is not channeling down to the woman my belief should should be given the information ahead of anybody else yes you know it's about you it's yours and I think the information should also be given to the woman's physician because that's where the first conversation will take that's place. That's right. You so know. it doesn't require any further diagnostic tools. It's part of the mammogram. The person who appraises the mammogram, we assume, has the relevant skills to identify breast density and should communicate that. It doesn't need to be a problem, but it's something that we need to be aware of. In the absence of this happening as, as a routine, certainly in the UK, you're telling me the same in Ireland, I can't comment on other countries. It's important for us to be aware of this and to ask the question. I keep asking the question. I don't necessarily get a clear answer either. For me, that's part of my patient experience, that things are not as straightforward as they could be or should be. And I think we, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be put off by this. Yeah, Karen, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's the experience. That's certainly been my experience yes. as well. You know, there are changes. Just as recently as March 2019, the FDA in the States, they have signaled 
a ruling on breast density notification for all women. So up until now, it has been state by state since Nancy introduced it in 2009. In Connecticut, that was the first state. And then other states, other, other patient advocates, just like you, like me, they got behind it. I think before the FDA ruling, there were 36 states. Wow. So that was, a, that was a lot of women power, you know. Where um, there is the will, where, where there is the power, things can happen. And yes, and things will happen. And the yeah. same now, it's begun in Canada. And I think we'll see a knock-on effect. Maybe it'll take a few years, but we can't be complacent and we can't just sit back and wait for it to happen. We can help to make it happen. I would say that what I'm doing, I believe, I hope, will pay dividends for the generation coming behind me. Our screening programs are hugely, hugely, hugely important. And at the same time, we're questioning those systems. So on one hand, we're saying, for God's sake, don't miss your mammogram. And on the other hand, I'm saying you must ask questions about this. Now, some people would say, well, you're casting a cloud of doubt over the... I'm not. I'm saying attend, but ask. Um, and, and that's the only way to do it. We've learned a lot. We've lost a lot. But I think we, we have to continue to keep that advocacy in uppermost. You know, it's like chipping away and... I suppose that's what I'm doing, really, I, little by little. And no, no great achievements, but little steps along the way. Um, and I guess until this is sorted out at government level, I think we all have to take responsibility and, and make those choices and ask. Yeah, keep and asking. Keep yeah. asking and perhaps uh, come across as a difficult patient. If we feel we can do this and take on this, this additional strain, it's perhaps the last thing we want to do when we go for checkups or, or monitoring, then mm. that's perhaps really worth thinking about. And, you know, it takes people like you, like Nancy, like everybody else that you have already mentioned and many more to get those little balls rolling. You mentioned advocacy earlier on, and I wanted to talk to you about that as well. How does one get into it? When, because it is a big responsibility and it will take up a lot of time and energy. Did you just feel it one day? This is something that you wanted to do? Or is this something that you did in your work previously anyway? Is it your calling? My initial background would have been in sales and marketing, so no. However, I did end up um, working with children with uh, learning difficulties, and I had done that from, say, 2002, 2003. I'm actually taking early retirement from that. So there would have been an element of, of advocating for children, um, yes. and I, I worked with young adults. So that was something that was very, came very natural to me. When I was diagnosed, I, well, like any woman, bolt from the blue, banging straight into head, long into a, into a, a brick wall, life comes to a standstill. The yes. most important thing to me at the time was I wasn't able to continue working. I wouldn't be able to. So yeah. work was hugely important to me. You do take stock of your life and, and you've lots of time to do it and you're awake at all times of the night and early mornings. There was a more of an awareness about what maybe I wanted to do or where to channel or how to channel my feelings. So it wasn't so much all about me, but when I went back to work, you know, I'd been dabbling with the breast density thing. 
and you know breast cancer awareness and whatever and I had a few friends um, who've, who've had breast cancer in the past and doing really really well and they didn't really want to know they were happy they'd moved beyond and they were back at work and everything was normal and I just couldn't quite let go of my own feelings I could understand that for them yeah but for me I just had this nagging sensation and when I went back to work I asked my own age group I started asking had you heard about breast density? When are you going for your mammogram? Just ask. So when I built it up to about 50 or 60 women within my own family group, friends, right. you know, colleagues, and no single one of them. So I realized it was a big issue here. It wasn't just an, an issue for the United States. And I went live on Twitter and I think that changed everything. <laughs> I was a little yes. bit afraid of Twitter to begin with, you know. Yeah. So, um, and it did change everything. I met Marie Ennis O'Connor on Twitter. I followed her all the time. She has a wonderful network. That's where I met you. That's right. And, and lots of others. So I think we've all got something to bring to the table. I think we learn so much from one another. We know? do. Before I came online there, actually, I just saw uh, Rod. Um, yes. Yeah, and he said uh, how sharing our own experiences, it gives us more empathy and makes us better people. And it, it takes the burden of our own diagnosis and whatever. We, yeah. we share it, so we feel it maybe just a little bit less. I think that's very true. I don't know if I'm quoting him exactly word for word, but I read it just briefly there this morning and I thought, you, you know, he's nailed it. That's exactly yes. it. That's, that's how it is for me anyway. He very kindly contributed to two podcasts, Cancer Voices, where he shared some of his own sort of ethos and advice. And uh, yes, being being part of a community in the most unlikely of places like Twitter for me too, I never expected this to happen. And I've learned so much and I continue to learn so much. And it also grows one's confidence. I find. I agree. Um, because yeah. one makes public statements and one has to find one's voice. And I think being an advocate, it is about being comfortable with your own voice because I guess people also want to hear that voice. I think so. And, and, and they might also approach us with certain expectations. I wonder whether advocacy sometimes can take on a life of its own and we have to remember we are part of it. Do you know what I mean? Whether it becomes almost a little machine like Siobhan is all about dense breasts. I agree with you. There is more, you're right. There's more to us. There's more to you than what I see in your blog. Yes. Your, I'm a mum to two boys. I'm a friend to people. I, you know, I love my garden. I like walking. I very lucky to live close to the sea. And there are people who might say, well, advocacy would compromise too much of their time, of their life. And I guess that's the point of view. And, and some people might say, well, if I do advocacy in an area that is personal to me, it might stop me from moving on. It might keep experiences alive that are rather leave to one side at least for the time being and you said earlier on well actually you had this feeling you had this niggling feeling there was something that you needed to do and I guess there are people like you and like myself where there is I felt a restlessness I felt I needed to do something with my own experience in order to not necessarily have closure but in order to be okay with it as much as I can it's part of my identity but I can understand and respect some people might not look at it like that at all 
I think you, you're speaking on behalf of all of us who have become involved. You know, in the lead up to the seminar, I visited myself and a very close friend. We visited, she was my co-driver, pilot for the, for the two days, to visit all of the screening centres, all of the hospitals. You know, so it was a very intense lead up to it. There was a lot of work done. And I was so tired at the end of it. I can imagine. Um, How do you refuel after that, mentally, physically, emotionally? I think I was absolutely revved up, really buzzing for a few days. Yes. And then there was this kind of, I came down. And maybe whilst it had been successful, it, it hadn't touched on all of my expectations. So then there was a level of a little bit of disappointment, maybe slightly disillusioned. But again, you just take a little bit of time out I think it's good to walk away. I think it's good to just have some quiet time and then prepare again. I also have a huge respect for people who don't want to ask the question. There are a lot of men and women and families who just, you know, parents of children who take the word of the person sitting in front of them, as do I. I have a wonderful team looking after me, but I ask questions all the time. Now, the difference between the, the person who doesn't ask the question and the person who does is enormous. But I believe that when you ask a question, you are entitled to an answer. I think for me, what I found initially anyway, was this don't go online. Don't look for information that was said to me. And I can understand that because, you know, you read an awful lot of nonsense online and you have to be very discerning and selective. That wasn't for me. I set about learning as much as I possibly could about the type of cancer I had. Then I realized it was one of a, a subtype. It was a particular cancer that maybe wasn't widely known or, or then I realized it was understudied and I thought, jeez, you know. So then I started to read um, research papers and obviously there was an amount of information in there that I just couldn't understand. But, you know, you can get through it. There's so much of it written in lay terms. So that's how I began. And, um, and then, as I say, I, I was invited to a seminar and I went to that in a little bit of trepidation, walking into a theatre and not having met anybody before. But you know what? There were lots of other women there. I had no idea that there was patient involvement or that patients were welcome, you know, and, and it was like opening a door into a whole new world. For me, I just took to it. So it's something that I really enjoy doing. Now, other people do say to me, Karen, John, you're still talking about breast cancer and it's been three years and you're not really getting very far with this density thing. Why don't you just put it to one side and move on? And why aren't you playing golf? And why aren't you this? And why? But your life just doesn't go back. You can't, your life is different. You know. And often I think that's what people are hoping for. I think they're trying to uh, do us a favor by saying this. And I recognize yeah. those words very well myself. When, when other people say, for instance, it's great to see you out and about. And I think, well, I'm out and about all the time. I'm just maybe not out and about doing the things that I did. I'm doing other stuff and I'm involved in other things. But they really want, they want to be able to say, you look really well. You're back to normal. Yes. And it's a kind of a comfort for them. Because that's how they know you. They know you as living a full life. They can't quite come to terms with the fact that perhaps your life really has changed. It's much easier for us to accept. I think our lives have changed irrevocably. Never, ever, ever going to be the same. Ever. I think that's the only way to actually go with it or live with it. Mm. Because we found out too much. 
<laughs> yeah. We can't forget what we've learned <laughs> and pretend it, it's not there. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, yeah. I sometimes I, I find it difficult when people say, you look so well. And I, I feel tempted sometimes to prick that little bubble and say, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. But I was just thinking when you said um, you attend these um, research meetings and you didn't realize patients go there. And then I thought, how lovely is it that you help organize or organize yourself these other meetings Yes, recently? And you are the one opening the door to fellow patients or non-patients. And you're actually taking this sort of expert tag or label out of meetings that are in all of our interests and that we all should be able and feel comfortable enough to attend if we so wish. Absolutely. So yeah. You're almost helping to democratize this, even though we could always go there anyway, but you're making it more accessible. I think it's, it's, it's not so much I am. I think the organization, and, and I would have to give full credit to Breast Predict, and the research team in, in University College in Dublin right. and in all, many other universities and facilities around the country, hospitals. So I think they, they deserve the credit. But there is, there is a, a recognition and an acceptance for patient involvement and indeed a requirement now for, for a lot of researchers, you know, in terms of grant applications and, and whatever. Glad to hear it, yes. Yeah. Um, so... So we need to take that up. It's taken a long time to get that and to have it recognized. I couldn't do this if I was working, Karen. I was just thinking this, this is a full-time commitment because even if you're at home like now, you're spending time thinking it is in your mind. It is a commitment that you make. Very difficult to do this, um, even with yeah. certain part-time jobs. Javon, just before we end for today, what advice would you give to to other people, uh, whether patients or not, women, men, whoever it is, who wants to get involved, perhaps not necessarily in uh, breast density, but anything um, that is relating to their own patient experience? Look, it's not for everybody. It, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of resilience because even within our own advocacy communities there can be adversarial issues so everything is not always going to go smoothly and you think look I'm doing this because because but you you do have to just be aware of the limitations associated to your own advocacy I'm a patient and I, I remember that first and foremost I'm not there to give medical advice and anything that comes up or any opinions I would just endorse the fact that it's not meant for or to be taken on board as, as medical opinion. And most of us patient advocates would know that and, and accept that. For, for self-care, sure, yeah, just listen to, listen to what's going on. I think most of us eat a healthy diet. You know, exercise has become a, a standard. Off work, I got involved with a patient organization called IPOSI. They provided some training for uh, 25 patients this year and last year. Right. And that has been just wonderful as well, to network with, with 25 other like-minded people. And we've done some media training with them. We've done studies into clinical trials. So it gives a better understanding of what you're reading sometimes online or what opportunities are, are out there for, for men and women to 
take part in clinical trials and how important it is. This is all done, I mean, this is really done thoroughly. It brings together this variety of people from different angles. There seems to be a mutual respect, a, a mutual willingness to work with each other. Yes, and there is also room, as you said, perhaps for disagreements or for, for questioning and things don't always run smoothly yes. wherever we go in life. And hence this resilience that you say is also needed. But also the priority, who are we first and foremost? And why are we doing what we're doing? Are our own expectations realistic? I think it grows, Karen. I think like a seed, you you plant it and you nourish it. And and I think for me, I can see very positive steps and and developments. And just recently as well, I applied to um, become a member of Advocacy in Science, Advocates in Science with Susan Coleman. And that gives, again, just some more information from an advocacy network in the States. And then there's the European Lobular Cancer Consortium as well. Now, that's something that I feel quite passionate about because lobular cancer is is my particular cancer. And there currently is no patient advocacy group in Ireland um, I think the first thing we must do is try and establish the, the respect and the tolerance for advocates to to get involved in these situations, you know, and that that it doesn't become a tokenistic gesture, you know, that that we actually are part of the, the conversation and that we're very much informed, number one, but also that we're kept informed. There might just be a tendency, if, if we're not careful, to allow this tokenism back into it yeah. and it's interesting that we've only come up with the word tokenism at the end yeah <laughs> our conversation and i hope that is a good sign sort of move beyond that a bit i think so i think we have I, I i think a lot of people have done a lot of work to get us to this place that's right so you know we must keep that in and mind keep that and go beyond that i have yeah. to apologize there was a bit of noise in the background my dog just came downstairs i'd forgotten to move the <laughs> bowl and she um, she slurped the whole lot <laughs> oh gosh so, uh, i hope i can i'm not sure whether i can edit it out I, hope it... I could you know we could have talked for for so long it's been lovely absolutely it's really lovely, it's really lovely to to meet you finally and to see yeah. you and to help yeah. share the work that you do thank you via cancer and you podcast let's keep talking we'll watch you and what happens and keep watching you on Twitter and reading your blog. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you. All the best with everything. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed and benefited from listening to this podcast episode with Siobhan Freeney and I. Check out the other episodes of Cancer and You and also another podcast series I have called Soul Cravings. All the information is in the text box below, including contact details for Siobhan. Wherever you are, take good care of yourself and I hope to be able to welcome you back here again very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Cancer and You with your host Karen Seeger. You can follow Karen on Twitter at Karen Seeger. Catch up with her articles, videos and work via her website, karensieger.com. That is K-A-R-I-N-S-I-E-G-E-R. We look forward to welcoming you here again next time.